in the exposition of the doctrine of salvation, the congregation has come to Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So this afternoon, it is my privilege to proclaim the Word of God to you as we summarize and confess that in Lord's Day 2 on page 518 of our Book of Praise, page 518. The first part of the Heidelberg Catechism begins there, our sin and misery. Lord's Day 2, where we echo the Word of God as follows. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. In response to the sermon, we will be singing from Psalm 65 to stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our sin and misery, brothers and sisters, not such a nice topic, you would think or say. Today's Catechism sermon and the ones in the next few weeks will be dealing with the first part of the Heidelberg Catechism, and for many, that's not their favorite part. We get the impression quite often, well, we've got to get through it to get to the good part, our redemption. But that's not very attractive. Miserable, really, as the heading implies. Then we are just like young people who know they have it coming. They did something wrong. They'll get an earful from dad, and once they are through it, they heave a deep sigh of relief, and then they move on trying to get back into dad's favor. That's the way many look at the first part of the Heidelberg Catechism. A few weeks of fire and brimstone, and then we hear about our salvation again. Our sin and misery that makes you feel bad and guilty. And who would like that? Does that not put a damper on that wonderful comfort of Lord's Day 1? Well, beloved, that's not the intention at all. You should know that already from question and answer 2, where we asked, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great our sins, my sin and misery are. 
We need to know it in order to live and die in the joy of the only comfort. That's what this first part is all about, that we may have joy, be at peace, enjoy happiness. We need to know it in order that the full blessedness of the only comfort may permeate our life. And even in death, we may enjoy the serenity and tranquility of God's fatherly care for Christ's sake, as we confessed in Lord's Day 1. That's what we must keep in mind when dealing with this first part. So I proclaim you live and die in the joy of the only comfort when you know your sin and misery. First of all, from the law of God. Secondly, from Christ's instruction. And thirdly, from the Spirit's work. So I summarize the message of this afternoon as follows. You live and die in the joy of the only comfort when you know your sin and misery. First of all, from the law of God. And perhaps that's another notion, brothers and sisters, that should be dispelled for us to get to the joy of the only comfort. We have to know our sin and misery from the law of God. Many people have a problem with the word law and its connotations its meaning and implications. Law that has such a negative sound, a threatening function for many. Well, the Bible certainly doesn't give you that notion, such a negative impression. In fact, with the words of Psalm 119, we just read and sang about the law, about the love for the law. Oh, how I love the teachings of your law. You see, the law, that's not just a book of do's and don'ts. It's God's Word for His people, the will of the Lord for the life of His people. As your catechism students will tell you, the law, that's not just the Ten Commandments, but in John 10, verse 34, the Lord Jesus refers to the law and implies that the entire Old Testament can be called that way. The law is God's Word in which He reveals Himself as the God who cares for you, for your life. It's the Word of your Father in heaven. So when the Heidelberg Catechism asks you what the law of God requires of you, beloved, it's a question to show you in its answer that God is love and desires nothing but your love for him and your neighbor. His law tells you who he is, the Lord your God, and what he demands of you. In other words, his law is a law of life. You may never separate that from the fact that he is the Lord your God, your heavenly Father, who cares for you so much that he shows you the way of life, the way of love. Then you don't say, oh, how beautiful that I belong to God through Christ, 
that I may depend on him as my father? Too bad, I now have to live according to his law. No! Then you don't know the Lord yet. Your God and Father, whose fatherly care for Christ's sake we confess in Lord's Day 1, we continue in the same line, in the same vein as we confess in Lord's Day 1. God is your Father for Christ's sake, who cares for you, who provides for you, and who preserves you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head without His will. He shows that same love and care for Christ's sake when He gives His law to you, when He tells you, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Why? He wants you to live, be happy, and enjoy your life as His child. Therefore, hear your Father's voice when you hear the law. Hear His love. Isn't that how you speak to your own child, beloved? When you give him some rules to live by? Rules like a curfew, good manners, show of respect, care, responsibilities, accountability. A child who knows that his parents care for him and love him will also know that they are seeking nothing but his well-being, his happiness by this show of love as expressed in these rules. They don't give them to be annoying or pestering, but in order that the child may see their loving care and be happy. That's how you have to see the Lord's law as well. They are rules in His covenant of love, expressing God's love and care. You see, then we are not dealing with negative matters this afternoon, or an annoying part of the Heidelberg Catechism, but you are still dealing with the Father's care and compassion for Christ's sake. Oh, sure, these matters are serious, no doubt. And a father who loves may have to become strict and serious at times and show his love by a detention or a chastisement holding up the terrible consequences when you don't live by His law. Yet He thus speaks and acts as the Father of love and of grace. You should know, brothers and sisters, that Moses already articulated such a positive understanding of the law. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 and 8, Moses says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you? You see, that's one. The Lord God is near His people, manifesting Himself in His care and love for them, and He gives them laws that are good and righteous. No wonder the psalmist sings about that, saying, Oh, 
How I love your law. No wonder David could also sing, Blessed is the man whose trespass is forgiven, whose sins are covered in the sight of heaven. Blessed is he who with a heart contrite and lowly confesses all his sins, O Lord most holy. These are the sins he knows from the law of the Lord. Then you are blessed. Happy that is. And you can rejoice because you know your sins and can confess them to be forgiven. That this must be understood as a privilege, beloved. You will realize when you think of the Gentiles around Israel, the people in countries today also who don't know the Lord as their God and Father. Archaeologists have found hymns of confessions in Babylon. And you will see how vague the people were about their guilt, how uncertain. They didn't really know what they had done wrong or why the gods were so much against them. You can hear those stories even today in Papua New Guinea and places like that. How unsure the people are about their lot, about their gods, and about the reasons for the misery they encounter. Did they offend their God? Hurt his feelings? Do something wrong? They don't have a clue. So they confess vaguely in ignorance, but actually they don't know what to do and how to get rid of their guilt. I know that even in our modern Western culture, there are lots of people who vaguely point to heaven and wonder what they have done wrong to deserve such a crappy treatment. They laugh about it or stick their heads in the sand or whatever, Yet it doesn't solve anything. Generally speaking, beloved, people know something is wrong with mankind. People don't really know how to deal with the misery in their life and in this world. It's easier to do it wrong than to do it right. As their New Year's intentions, they promise and try to do better this year, but soon after, most of these good intentions have fallen in disuse. Impossible. It's man's human deficit, as they sometimes call it. Man's inclination to faults and failures. When you are an optimist, you look at all the good things in the world, the decent people and the progress in certain places. No sooner, though, do you turn on the news on TV or you see people at each other's throats in Nigeria, ISIS rebels in Iraq or Libya, or the continued division in Syria, the casualties in Afghanistan. Then you can pretend to be an optimist and think, Oh, that's just dark Africa or the Islamic Far East. But you wait for news from the States and you see the looting and burning in Milwaukee. 
or of Toronto and its so many is homicide. You only have to watch one of those garbage shows once and you know what man is like. And if that doesn't take away your optimism, you can turn to the sports section in the paper and read that another hockey, car, hockey star has been clobbered and that in the junior hockey league, the parents should be banned from the bleachers. Welcome to the real world. Sin and misery, my brother and sister, is in man. Yes, and we here in the church aren't much better given the attitude sometimes and the bullying. No, not just in the playground where we are so concerned about it, but also in the hockey arena or in the church. And if it has changed and improved, that's only by the grace of God and through the resisting power of the Holy Spirit. Then the world may explain that as our human deficits, our imperfections, or our subjection to the world of evil, whatever that means, but they won't get an answer, no matter how fat the volumes of psychology and psychiatry. Thank God, therefore, that you have the law of our God and that you may be happy and rejoice because God has come to you with his law, with his word. He holds up this mirror to you and shows you how ugly you are in your thoughts and words and deeds. How come? because you rebelled against God and broke the bond with God. And so you entered the realm of evil, the dominion of darkness of the devil. And that not because it is your lot, but because we chose for it. Sin and evil, my brother and sister, does not belong in this world. It does not come from God or belong to God. He is good and just and righteous and loving. That's why he went all out to make an end to it. Yes, he can. And indeed, he will. And yes, he is in the process of doing so. You know that from his word, from his law. Yes, ever since he gave this law, he worked on the hearts and minds of people to change them, the renewal of life and the restoration of love. That law is so good and so just and so righteous, just as its giver is. He says, you will have to change, live differently. And you, you can, because it is my law. It is the law of him who is and who was and who is to come. Come with what? With his kingdom of light and life and love. That's why you should not shy away from the law, but look at your father, the giver of his law, and see his plan and his purposes, his intentions and progresses. Better yet, don't just look at him. Go to him with your sins and misery and with the burden of your guilt 
And you will see that he came to you not just with his law of love, but with his gift of love in Jesus Christ. He puts you in the light of God's law and shows you even more clearly in his words and deeds what it means to fulfill that law. Good thing you know your sin and misery from the law of God so that you may live in the joy of the only comfort which is yours in Jesus Christ. Good thing you have a Father who cares and who gives you His laws of love that you may live. And so we come to our second point, knowing our sin and misery from Christ's instruction. Every Sunday, In Exodus 20, brothers and sisters, we hear the reading of the law, the formal, solemn, and official declaration of the constitution of the covenant in the ten words, which I present to you on behalf of the Lord, our covenant God. Then in Matthew 22, we hear the Lord Jesus' explanation, the summary of this law, The instruction Christ gives in reply to a question of one of the experts of the law. But what Christ said in response to the man's question, which is the greatest commandment in the law, is a quotation of what Moses already said in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Christ quotes Moses in order to instruct his readers regarding the main principle and purpose of the law, love. In our scripture passage in John 13 and 15, he does the same. Perhaps he does so in somewhat different words and in a different setting, but all he does is instruct the people in the proper understanding of the law. It's clear and succinct command, love one another. Abide in my love and in the love of the Father. Then it is important, beloved, to note who is doing the instructing. The fact that he does so puts that Old Testament law in a totally new light. He knows what he is talking about. He knows what the love of God the Father is all about, and he knows what it means to love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. There's nothing in the world that can be compared to this love of God the Father and God the Son who came into the flesh as a gift of love. So as I said, when he tells us what the law means, entails, and how the law can be fulfilled, then we better sit up and listen. For so much did God the Father love the world that he gave his only Son. Also, so much did the Son love the Father that he rather died on the cross than that he would ignore or shortchange the will, the justice of his Father in heaven. Christ loved the Father so much that he went the whole way of humiliation in order that the Father would be glorified by all who would be saved by him. 
Indeed, as he put it himself, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Talking about someone who knows what he's talking about. Did he ever love God above all and his neighbor, his friends, as himself? Well, that's what the whole law and all the prophets were about. So, if there is one, my brother and sister, who can tell you, who can command you, you have to love, it's Christ, our Lord. He did it. He showed it and made it a reality for man. Love one another. Yes, you can. Speaking about a new beginning, a new era, and a new command, this is it. Christ loved God and us perfectly, and Christ conquered the powers of sin and Satan, subduing the kingdom of darkness, the realm of sin and evil. Hence today, this is indeed the constitution of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light and life. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Thanks to Christ, this kingdom is breaking its way into the world, into our midst also, so that we may see this love prevail and bear fruit. That's fulfillment also of John's words in his epistles in which he reminds his readers repeatedly, a new command I write to you, for the darkness is fading away and the true light is already shining. That's thanks to Christ's instruction, Christ's sacrifice, and Christ's victory over the devil and his reign of darkness. The law of God, therefore, is a law for our time and age, and fulfilling this law by faith in Christ, that's in. Hence, in this love, you can live in the joy of the only comfort. For you learn to know your sin and misery from Christ's instruction and His victory. And then in the third place, we see also that we know our sin and misery from the Spirit's work. Lord's Day 1, brothers and sisters, we've made confession of the only comfort personally, that I am not my own. We also did so collectively as church. It's the church, the mother of us all, the mother who knows her children, who cares for her children, who asks, what really is your only comfort in life and death? Young and old learn to make this confession personally in the church. In the church, as the workshop of the Holy Spirit, we learn to believe that we belong to God in Christ. We learn from Christ what our sin and misery is. We also learn from Christ what the new command is for a life in the joy of the only comfort. Then we learn from Him as well, though, 
that we do not keep this command very well. Even though he broke through the darkness and makes the true light shine, and we see through his Holy Spirit this truth of love make inroads in our life, yet rather than a life of all love and of service in love, we still live for ourselves quite often rather than for God and the neighbor. We may love at certain occasions <coughs> or when we are in the, in the right mood, but the least has to happen in our life or God is shortchanged in his love for us. And with regard to our neighbor, we take again the approach of my way or the highway. Do you realize that, my brother and sister, how little we show the image of Christ and how much there still is that evil that dwells in our heart? How imperfect is our love for God, our love even for the one we love most in our life? Imperfect is our love. Yes, that continues to be the serious message of Lord's Day 2 that we need to know. As John writes in chapter 16, verse 8, the Holy Spirit has come to convict us of that sin and misery. That may be humbling, yet it's so true that we have to confess as well, I am still inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's the way I am by nature. That's the way we were conceived and born, we confess at the baptism of our children. Thankfully, then, we were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we were rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves, the kingdom of light. That's where we may now live, by the grace of God, in the love of Christ. That's where the Holy Spirit is fulfilling God's covenant promises to us, since He wants to dwell in us, renewing us by faith in Christ. I belong to Him as child of light, and I am comforted in Him over my sin and misery. You see, beloved, and then we have been exposed this afternoon to the light of God's law and to the lesson of love in Christ. Now we know it again, who we are by nature and what we are like. And then we agree wholeheartedly with Paul that though we want to live in love and obey the commandment of the law, what we want to do we don't, while what we don't want to do, we do. Yes, we exclaim, but not in despair, miserable man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then we exclaim in joy, rather, thank God, through Jesus Christ, I am delivered and will be delivered for I am his possession. That is my only comfort, and I can live in the joy of that only comfort because my loving Father 
held up his law of love to me. And his son has shown me his love and leads me in the way of love through the working of his Holy Spirit. Amen.